Hello, Champion Brewing. Hello, people that are participating in the Global Game Jam and people that aren't and asking what the heck's going on. We are RVA Game Jams, and this weekend is Global Game Jam. If you're not familiar with it, Global Game Jam is a 48-hour uh, event where we uh, try to make a game. We um, try to make a complete video game. We're given a theme and try to make a game around it. We uh, cooperate with these fine sponsors. I'd like to thank um, Champion Brewing, obviously, as well as VCU Arts Kinetic Imaging. We got a lot of KI people here. What about other VCU Arts? VCU Arts in general, let me hear it. All right, all right. Um, and then also VCU Libraries, where we'll be hosting the uh, proper jam itself. We'd like to thank them. I would like to introduce our guest speaker this year, which is uh, Clint Half-Coordinated Lexa. Let's give it up for Clint. Oh, he's already so excited to talk. I can tell. Uh, Clint, if you're not familiar, goes by the handle half-coordinated. He is a uh, speedrunner, streamer, and accessibility advocate. He speedruns games one-handed. Uh, he was at Awesome Games Done Quick earlier this month, speedrunning Semblance, uh, indie game by Niamakop out of South Africa. Um, and it was really cool. You should have been there. <laughs> I was there. So I care. <laughs> um, but yeah, we, uh, we invited Clint up. He's a, he's a Virginia native here to talk about kind of uh, his experiences with talking about accessibility in gaming and speedrunning and, and streaming. So uh, without further ado, uh, here is Half Coordinated. So I'm really nervous. Just to let you all know up front, uh, and I'm also operating this. He gave me an excellent introduction, so shout outs to Dylan just right away. Because that, that, that frees up a little bit of what I have to say. But I am operating under the assumption that, well, one, you don't know who I am, so you've probably made better life choices. Um, so as he said, uh, Half Coordinated and I play, I speedrun games one-handed. Uh, the reason that I do that is I have a physical disability called hemoparesis uh, that lowers feeling and coordination on the entire right side of my body. So. It just happened to be the better way for me to play, um, especially ever since, say, the... I've been play, playing games all my life, but ever since I got a PS2, because that's where the controller kind of started to work out for me to actually play one-handed. Because um, unfortunately, I had an N64 instead of a PS1, the uh, famous three-handed controller. So that, that didn't work out in that particular case. but. Uh, from there, I eventually led into speedrunning. So if you're unfamiliar with speedrunning, that's playing a game as fast as you possibly can, uh, either completing the game entirely or just reaching a certain goal or getting everything. There's a whole bunch of different ways you can approach speedrunning, uh, but with the goal of completing it quickly and often kind of running the game over and over uh, to kind of bring that time down and be competitive with other players. Um, so I've been doing that since uh, 2012 uh, is when I got my start with that. And I've had eight uh, games done quick runs since 2015. So I've, and it's all been a different game each time. I've ran uh, several games by Platinum Games like Near Automata, uh, Vanquish, and Transformers Dev Devastation, and then several indie games like Momodor, Reverie Under the Moonlight, and Semblance, uh, which Dylan mentioned I did this year. 
Um, it has been a little bit of an awkward thing existing in that sort of competitive space while having a physical disability, because uh, you're, what you're trying to push a game as far as you can, uh, but you're kind of starting with a little less. But speedrunning has also been an excellent community for that, because it's not directly competitive, it's something where we're working together to bring the game's time down rather than against each other. So you're all kind of rooting for each other, even if you are uh, competing. Uh, so it's kind of lovely in that way. Um, so existing in that space, that's sort of what led to my accessibility advocacy, getting to go on that stage for GDQ and kind of show that, hey, you can do this amazing, these amazing things as long as the game actually lets you, and sometimes the game doesn't let you. Uh, and uh, so I really tried to talk about that when I can. And that advocacy went into eventually accessibility consultation. I got contacted by Jason Kanam from uh, Household Games after a run of mine in 2016. Uh, and I helped consult for their game Way of the Passive Fist which is a wonderful pun of a name that I'm just very proud of them thinking of. Um, but it's, so I consulted with that game and I've done a few others, some pro bono stuff before that as well. Um, but it's something I really just wanna help as many games as possible, reach as many different needs as possible to people to play them. Um, so it led me to here, eventually somehow I ended up here. Um, and so talking about accessibility, but what is it? It's basically the ease of access uh, for those with disabilities for your games. Physical, uh, such as uh, motor disabilities, uh, such as my own, um, and uh, cognitive uh, disabilities, uh, so ones that would have issues with overstimulation or following uh, large or complex commands. Um, and uh, visual, you know, such as uh, blindness or just poor vision, uncorrectable vision or color blindness and audio. So there's a lot that can go into making your game as accessible as possible for as many people to play it as possible. And uh, so, you know, that again ranges from, so getting your game accessible has ranges from features such as remappable controls, be ready for me to say remappable controls several times throughout this talk because it's sort of my specialty uh, area. Um, and say clear subtitles are just a big one as well if that happens to apply to your game. Um, and you might be thinking at this point, you know, that sounds like a lot of work, a lot of effort. We're going to be making a game in 48 hours. How the heck are we supposed to, you know, care about this? while we're just trying to work that miracle of getting a game put together uh, within that short time frame, And you know, that's a valid question. Luckily for everyone though, often good design happens to be accessible design. So uh, just going through a bunch of examples here. Uh, so for one, you want to avoid using cues to the player that are either purely visual or purely audio. You want to try and pair those together as often as you can so that uh, those that are either hard of hearing or, um, or uh, visual issues can get that cue through what they do have available to them. 
Uh, and you know, that's just generally a good design tip because multiple cues make it more likely for anyone to pick up on what you are trying to present to the player. Um, similarly, avoid color being the only d distinction between uh, multiple objects. So uh, for example, if you have a uh, collectible uh, items or you have uh, objects that the player can interact with, uh, you want to try and make sure there is some other distinction other than just color to make, so the player can distinguish those multiple things. So uh, for example, uh, say there's uh, multiple objects that the player can choose from and they have different effects. If you only have it as color, the player might not know what those different effects are until they, after they've activated them because they can't tell the difference uh, if they are colorblind. A uh, big thing for that, you can test for colorblind issues as well uh, within your design of your game just with, say, visual design settings available in, say, Photoshop or um, as well as uh, there is a pro program you can download for free. I promise it's not spyware or adware. It's uh, at colororacle.org, and you can ask me about that later. Perfectly fine. Um, it's a program that you just kind of sits in your taskbar after you open it, and you can click on it, and it will pre present a screen simulating three major types of color blindness. So you can use that to kind of compare what the level the your this is your screen actually looks like to a colorblind player and say, hey, that actually doesn't stand out very well. I should probably shift a few things around. So you have that option available to you. Excellent little program to use. Um, so always uh, with that, a big thing with that colorblindness is try to consider uh, especially interactive objects and the background in particular uh, from each other because that's the main thing. If you have some issues within, say, one sprite, uh, that's usually negligible, but if it's something where that whole sprite disappears in your background, uh, then that becomes a much more major issue. Sorry, as I reference my notes, uh, really should get better handwriting. Um, so, uh, continuing with visuals, uh, I would suggest, and this is a stylistic choice going here, is to try and avoid uh, bright full screen flashes and uh, overly chaotic visuals in your game. Uh, that is something that a lot of games that I love actually tend to do. I mean, one of my favorite games of all time is Gunstar Heroes, and that has a bunch of flashes, a bunch of action happening all the time. Uh, but it's something where, maybe not for this jam, but if you were doing a full game, you could have an option to turn those sort of effects off. Um, so, it, because these sorts of effects, those flashes, those can cause uh, photosensitive headaches, and they can also be an issue for those with cognitive disabilities where, uh, where it becomes too much of a processing load mentally uh, for that player. So, with more visual stuff, text. You want to make it big, clear, simple. Avoid extravagant fonts. Uh, those can be disorienting and hard for players to read. So of course you can style it up a little bit, uh, but try and keep it clear uh, so that it's, well, clear uh, what the player is needs to do. And here, 
something that possibly uh, game jams excel at uh, games excel at the most minimize the amount of inputs required to actually start the game. So a lot of uh, games I would probably expect you might just drop you right in, uh, in this case, or you will likely just have a start option to select uh, within your game, and that's generally actually good design uh, to be able to let a player drop right in. Again, for cognitive reasons and uh, physical reasons to make sure you don't have to go through a lot of a menu, if you do have customizable settings, though, uh, which, again, you're, you're, you're trying to put a one whole game together uh, as quickly as possible, so I understand if you don't end up having that. But if you do, try and have those settings available before you actually get into the game. Uh, or if you are dropped right in, make it so that you can pause and change those as soon as possible. Um, and so going through that then, controls, again, that tends to be my personal focus. Um, I, I'm practically required to state, it's basically my job to say that full remapping for controls is always the best, but I fully understand that you likely won't have time for that. You're going to be doing, busy with a whole lot of other things today, and well, actually this weekend, excuse me. Um, so with that in mind, um, a good alternative is to provide uh, several different ways to perform each action. So, if you have, so let's say your game is keyboard only. Um, you want to try and make it so that you have multiple different keys that can uh, do each action so that someone that is playing standardly with two hands can play, someone that has to play with only their right hand can play, and someone that's playing with just their left hand could still reach all of the commands to be able to successfully play your game. And uh, so that's, as an example, um, if possible, support uh, multiple input devices such as controllers as well. Uh, I personally do almost all of my gaming with a controller. I would love to be able to try your games. <laughs> but uh, if it ends up you know, that you can't use a controller and it's something basic on the keyboard, I should be able to fare along okay. Um, but uh, controllers are kind of little wonderful tools, in, in my opinion, and if you have the skills for that to be possible in your game, please include it if you have the time. Um, so again, I understand I might be asking a lot, but it's partially my job to ask as much as possible. Um, so going with controls as well, uh, avoid mashing. So mashing, uh, is uh, so mashing being pressing a button repeatedly as fast as you possibly can. Um, avoid that, that can be uh, very difficult for a lot of players to physically do, as well as uh, impossible for some other people to do. So you want to try and keep that out of your game if possible. Similarly, uh, try to avoid requiring a player to hold down a button for uh, an extremely long period of time. Uh, a solution for both of these might be something where you could have an option be toggleable instead of having it be, uh, so you press it once and then it's active. Say, let's say you're making a basic shmup, then that shmup you could have, uh, just press the button to start firing, press it again to stop. So that's an example of a solution uh, for avoiding both mashing or having to hold down a button continuously. So try to avoid complicating your controls uh, as much as you can, try just using as many uh, required inputs as needed. 
Uh, it's something I see a lot of with games, say, for example, to activate some super move or something where they'll have you press like both trigger buttons or something like that on the controller at once. And you know, sometimes that's the only option they have, uh, given what, uh, what, they, what they've designed for. Um, but uh, if you have just one button available, make it one button instead. So try to not overly complicate what you're going for. There are certain genres where designers tend to purposefully make the controls a little harder to work with, such as horror games, because that becomes an element of the horror. But uh, try to keep it to a limit, because again, you could be shutting people out from even trying to play your game at all if you go too far with that. Um, also, um, if it is a mouse game, so if mouse is the primary form of control, um, I would advise to try and include a setting to actually adjust the um, sensitivity of the mouse, because people might be playing with something other than a mouse, something that simulates it, a different kind of input device to actually be able to play your game at all. Um, so that's something big to consider. Uh, for example, it could be using eye tracking software and you might need more sensitivity or less. There's a lot of different ways that people will likely be trying to play your game. Um, and also with that, avoid, avoid requiring multiple in, uh, diff, unrelated input devices to actually get started in the game. If it's possible for a controller to be used in your game, uh, don't require them to use the keyboard and mouse to go through the menus. So, and vice versa, you know, uh, make sure that they can use whatever they're using to control your game in the end to go, get there and actually start your game. So, that kind of covers basics and again, uh, hopefully you'll have questions for me later, but going into, so if you were making a regular full, on a regular kind of dev cycle, you were trying to make a full game you know, on a regular time frame, not putting it all together in 48 hours, when should you start considering accessibility? You can probably predict that my answer is immediately. You should try to think about accessibility right away. Um, as soon, like just when you're coming up with the idea of what your game is going to be, that's when it should be considered. Um, the reasoning behind this, while some features such as uh, custom remapping uh, for controls can be recommended for just about every game in existence, um, there will be many possible features dependent on the game's actual design. Uh, for example, hopefully you've all heard of Celeste. There's, maybe you haven't, but uh, just uh, to describe it a little bit, it's a, it's a precision platformer um, that uh, you're climbing a mountain uh, through a lot of uh, very fast, precise movement, and the game happens to have a wealth of amazing accessibility features such as infinite dashes, invincibility, slowing the game down. These are all just excellent features that they have, and uh, but a lot of those, like infinite dashes, you don't need that if you're making a turn-based RPG. That's irrelevant then. So instead, it might be great to have an option to make the UI larger so that someone can more easily interact and view all of those different options they have for fighting the monsters in there. There's, so it's going to depend on the design of your game what is precise features are really going to get you the most mileage. 
So that's part of why I've been so general uh, with uh, what I've discussed so far. Um, so, but if these sort of challenges are considered from the start, right away when you're putting the game together or just thinking about what the game is going to be, it's much easier to prepare your game for them. So, uh, for example, let's say you were making a precision platformer uh, like Celeste, and uh, at which, so there's that infinite dashing mechanic uh, that they added in. Uh, let's say, or, or if they hadn't considered that from early on, they could have, you can code yourself into a corner and be unable to add such a feature later, or it can become then a lot of work to actually add that feature. If you start from the beginning considering accessibility, you can actually have that in your game much easier and just kind of code for that in mind, and it becomes much, much easier to implement, taking very little time and resources to actually add into your game, and that's one, great for you, and often it ends up making those features much better in the end and more complete into your game's design. Uh, so that makes a huge difference for both you and the end game with the players. Um, so again, you can end up with features being too locked in place if you consider too late. Um, so I've talked a lot about accessibility, uh, but why should you care? Um, and I hate having to ask that question, but I feel it is relevant. Um, about 15% of the population are uh, disabled in some way. That's a lot of potential players. Um, it can also assist with temporary issues, such as, say, in a broken arm, you can have controls that allow someone to play one-handed comfortably. Um, or uh, situational, like just trying to be quiet at night, so you have to play with it, it muted and subtitles turned on. Uh, these are all accessible features that matter for your game. Um, as mentioned, with good design being accessible design, accessibility features tend to help and enhance games for almost everyone. Um, it's rare and honestly very baffling uh, to see someone complain about rebindable controls in a game. I, I, I can't think of a reason why someone would be upset that they could change a button's function. Um, so it's just very common, even with those without disabilities, to want to move one button to a, one action to a different button or switch things around just a little bit. And I do want to mention, because with rebindable controls, one thing that often gets forgotten and something you won't really have time for this weekend, but to keep in mind later, is actually the uh, control sticks on a controller often get forgotten and kind of are just left alone. Uh, it's not everyone actually holds a controller in the same direction. I know plenty of people that hold them sideways or upside down because of how their physical needs require them to. So being able to remap the control sticks to actually face the direction that they're holding would help them not have to do uh, mental gymnastics just to figure out how to move left um, or right or any direction, really. Um, so with all of this, I would be remiss to not mention, and I'm going to be going off my notes a little more tightly here, to not mention that the end goal of accessibility is not just to allow play to happen, but to instead enable someone to actually excel. And that actually gets missed a lot, because there's a, lot, a tendency to say, oh, well, that's good enough. Uh, but we've hopefully all been there, you know, if you are, if you play games at all. We've hopefully all been there at some point where you're just 
in the zone playing a game. You're really into it, and you just everything's flowing just right for you. And you really want that experience to go to as many people as possible. And if the controls or the interface or the sound, it's work, if it becomes work for that person to play your game, then they're not going to get to that point. They're not going to excel, and they're just not going to have that great of a time. Um, so that becomes your responsibility to try and make that possible at all. So wrapping up the part where I'm just saying words at you, um, there's a lot of great resources out there that you could possibly even reference this weekend. I did mention color, uh, color Oracle for that, uh, .org for that tool for colorblindness. Um, there's also gameaccessibilityguidelines.com. It's a great resource that lists a wide variety of accessibility features with examples, breaking them down by ease of implementation, so it'll be basic, intermediate, and advanced. So even if you just kind of stick to what's basic uh, this weekend, that can help get your game a lot more accessible overall. Um, there's also uh, ablegamers.org. Uh, it's a uh, wonderful charity. Uh, I know quite a few people from them uh, that uh, they actually make controllers, uh, custom controllers for those that need them to be able to play with, uh, say, excessive mo motor disabilities, and they work within the industry to make it so that's less needed over time. And they do an excellent job. So uh, looking into them uh, over time, just some people, and uh, I can mention to these later if you're curious, uh, at Ian Hamilton, which is just Ian Hamilton uh, on Twitter for the reference, uh, at Ian Hamilton underscore accessibility spe specialist. He uh, is an organizer for the Game Accessibility Conference, which happens alongside uh, GDC, um, and just has a wealth of information on his own uh, about accessibility and what uh, good practices are. Um, Steven Spohn is the uh, COO of Able Gamers, a uh, good friend. We were both actually survivors of being nominated for Trending Gamer of the Year. Um, and I don't use the word survivor lightly. But uh, so that, that was a thing that happened. But uh, good friends uh, before and after that, thankfully. Um, Cherry Ray, who is a, uh, at Cherry, R-A-E, um, she is a consultant as well, uh, particularly with uh, physical and uh, simulatory uh, issues. And she's also a streamer uh, as well. Uh, by the way, I, I do a lot of streaming, so that's just associated with speedrunning. But uh, that's a major thing. Uh, there's also for uh, hard of hearing access, there's uh, at Deaf Gamers TV and at One Odd Gamer Girl. Uh, they're both uh, deaf and hard of hearing advocacy. Uh, so they know a lot for those particular issues. And maybe you want to talk to someone local about uh, accessibility issues. There is your own uh, Ruthie Edwards, who is in the crowd. There's Ruthie. Ruthie, I bet she would just love to talk to you about accessibility if you have questions at some other time. She gave me a thumbs up, so I don't feel awkward about calling her out on that now. But uh, so that's good. Um, and there's also me. I'm here all weekend. I'm at Half Coordinated. Hi. Uh, you can feel free to ask me questions specifically regarding accessibility or streaming, uh, speedrunning, uh, a whole wealth of stuff. You feel free to just ask me questions. And with that, I'd love to uh, open up the floor 
four questions. If you like this talk and want to listen to the Q&A section or any of our other talks, presentations, or game dev tutorials, you can support us at patreon.com forward slash RVA Game Jams. <laughs>